Well, good morning. Good morning. I was hoping uh, today was going to be the day where we where we lost the masks. It's it's always quite disconcerting standing up here and you try and gauge people's expression and all you see is their eyes. There's there's very little to be gleaned just from the eyes. Um, it was a bit weird, wasn't it, having all the kids out for the kids kids song? But uh, I think my children need to take responsibility for that. It was them that <laughs> them that started to go. I have the same dilemma as Ash has with. Uh, with the, with the clocks where you don't trust the automatic adjustment on your phone. And we have one mechanical clock in the house, but that mechanical clock is in our son's bedroom. And uh, we put it forward an hour at night just to make him feel like he's getting a late night because <laughs> that's, what, that's what you ask for when you're at the age of eight. So you can never quite trust it. Um, and I think Willie does this deliberately where he avoids the spring forward and the fall back Sundays, um, because you don't get a good night's sleep when you try and work out if you're going to be late for church or on time. But anyway, good morning and thank you to to the band and indeed Ash for for leading us this morning. As Ash said, we're in Romans 8 and we're going to be continuing in our our series there where Willie left off from last week. We're going to read again, if you don't mind, um, verses 31 through to, to 34. We're reading from the ESV translation and... They're on the screen behind me. It says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave up him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's just thank God for his his word and commit our time um, and our consideration of the word to him. Let's pray. Gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to to come together as a church, to come together as friends and as brothers and sisters, to to open up your word and to consider just the, the perils of wisdom that are contained within. Word that encourages us and challenges us. Word that spurs us on. Word that reveals your goodness and your grace word that speaks about your mercy and word that is fit for us today. Lord, we pray that you would speak through it in your precious son's name. Amen. Willie's theme last week was the purpose of God and he walked through it uh, both eloquently and succinctly that section of text that precedes what we have just read. I'm paraphrasing, but The text that Willie covered says this, Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he glorified. And Willie explained to us that God's purpose was and is relentless. It's unchallengeable. It's something unassailable. That his purpose is what he determines it to be. And that ultimately is a purpose that is working out a plan for you and for me to bridge that chasm 
that was existed between God and us because of our iniquity. And in his plan for those who accept him, it involves God knowing your inmost being, it involves choosing you, it involves calling you, it involves justifying you through Christ, and it involves bringing you to glory with him forever. And so when we get then to this verse, to verse 31, the start of our study this morning, it says, what do we say to all of these things? What remarks have we to make? What reaction do we have as a response? And to me here, Paul seems to suggest that there is no reaction fitting enough. There is no words that can possibly render enough praise that can articulate enough the blessing and goodness of God in one response. Indeed, the response is almost like, wow, wow. If this is for me, if God is on my side, if God is Derek's personal saviour, if, if God is your personal saviour, if he is a rescuer, then he foreknew you, he predestined you, he called you, he justified you, and he glorified you. Now, who can possibly stand in your way? Who can possibly stand in my way? He has glorified you. As Willie said last week it's interesting the past tense language they're speaking about a future event although the attaining of god's glory may indeed be future god's determining that we will attain it has already been accomplished it's already won it's already done the home run has been struck before the batter has stepped up to the plate the race has ended before the bang of the gun. The match decided before the first whistle. That's what he has done. That's why when we get to verse 31. When Paul says what shall we say to these things. The response is if God can be for us. Who can possibly be against us. The opposition needn't bother turning up. It's a foregone conclusion. It's been done for us. What we couldn't do for ourselves. So last week, the title was The Purpose of God. This week, it's The Promise of God. And when we think about the promise of God in relation to this text from Romans 8, I think it would be helpful to consider it threefold. We see the promise of God in His security, we see the promise of God in His sacrifice. And we see the promise of God in his salvation. Three S's. Security, sacrifice, salvation. Firstly then, the promise of God in his security. We could view our text as a, a beautiful hymn-like celebration of our security in Christ as a response to what Paul has said in the previous 30 verses of chapter 8, or indeed as a response to what he's been speaking about in the last three chapters, from, from chapter 5 through to now, this, this section of his letter to the church in Rome could be summed up perhaps with the heading of the gospel and the power of God for salvation. That's the theme of Paul's message here. That's what this piece is all about. And here we get to the nub of it. Paul reminding us that God is for us. In giving us his son, he has at the same time secured for all of us 
all that we need to get through this life to attain final salvation. No one is then successfully able to bring any charge against us to cause us to be condemned in any judgment. For if God has chosen us and justified us by his own son, it's his son who answers any indictment brought against us. This, this chapter 8 is topped and tailed with this theme. You remember the verse 1 that we, we did a few weeks, about, weeks back where it speaks about there being no condemnation. It says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we pick up that same theme here in verse 33. Those are the facts. That is what it is. Because of Jesus, there is security. Because of Jesus, there is no condemnation. It's an absolute. It's not a, there is maybe now no condemnation. Or there's perhaps a little condemnation. Or you may experience condemnation for a while. It's not that at all. It's not a maybe. It's a never. It's not a little. It's a nothing. It's not a temporal thing. It's a permanent fixture. Is there anything comparable in life? Is there any such security like the security of Christ? Can anything possibly compare? I can't think of anything. And I guarantee that you can't think of anything more than Jesus that brings about permanent, immovable, insurmountable security. No earthly relationship, no earthly possession, no amount of money, no amount of freedom, no job, no fame, no power, no wisdom, no gift, no talent, nothing other than Jesus. Where is our security this morning? Is it planted in some of these things that I've just mentioned, in fame and power and money? Is it defined by what we do or where we live? Or is it predicated on how life is panning out for us at a given moment in time? Do we turn to Jesus only when the waves of life start to roll in? Do we only seek him and his grounding when the things, people and institutions that we have come to rely on become unstable crutches? Or do we seek him when all is calm and serene? When life is moving comfortably? When life is just simply moving along? The answer isn't one or the other. The answer is both. We are to seek him in the calm and we are to seek him in the storm. But one of the advantages of seeking him in the calm is that we can prepare our hearts for the storms. Daily we can come to him, resting in his security and partaking in his grace. Charles Spurgeon, when he was reflecting on this and reflecting on Jesus' grace, he says this, Beloved Christian reader, in matters of grace... You need a daily supply, a daily supply. You have no strength to store. Day by day, you must seek help from above. 
We can prepare our hearts, our minds for hard days in the easier days, our, our daily Bible reading, our, our prayers of petition, our committing to memory of Scripture, our important investments which gradually change us over the years like the psalmist we can store up God's word in our hearts to to protect us from temptation but ultimately we are to rely on God's work in us applying that word to our hearts by his spirit do you ever doubt that God will do this do you ever fear that God won't give you enough endurance for the trial or, or strength to resist temptation or enough joy for your moments of sorrow. Spurgeon continuing to reflect on this says, it's a very sweet assurance that a daily portion is provided for you. In the word, through the ministry, by meditation, in prayer, and waiting upon God, you shall receive renewed strength. In Jesus, all needful things are laid up for you. Then enjoy your continual allowance. Never grow hungry while the daily bread of grace is on the table of mercy. Every day of our lives, we receive more mercy than we could ever grasp or deserve. So when we have those doubts, we are to pin them on the cross. We are to pin them to Jesus. We are to commit them to prayer. It's normal to doubt because this world gives you nothing but doubt. How many times have you heard the phrase this last three years about fake news? How many times have you been let down by family or by friends or even by heroes of the faith? How many times have things or people not come through for you? That's never the case with Jesus. That's not what this promise of security in Romans is about. When God promises, or what God promises in Romans 8.32 is that he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Among those all things are all the promises of God for his children that's contained within the word. This is the security for all who call on his name. If you're to read 2 Corinthians and verse 20 of chapter 1, it says this. All the promises of God are yes in him. Yes in who? Yes in Jesus. And Jesus was given for us by God. That's what it says here. And so if Jesus was given for us, then all the promises are affirmed in him. They are all yes in him. They are all yes in Jesus. And so when you go through scripture and you read some of these promises like that in Matthew 28 and 20 where it says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Or the promise from Isaiah 41, many hundreds of years earlier in verse 10 where it says this, Fear not, for I am with you. Be you not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or the promise of Hebrews 13 and 5. I will never leave you. Nor forsake you. We are to hear them as yes. We are to hear them as security. We are to hear them as the solid ground. On which we stand. Be that an encouragement to you today. Whether you're walking through ill health. Whether you're suffering from loneliness or depression struggling with your job 
or with your relationships, finding it difficult to connect, and wondering why you find life so hard. Please find rest. Find peace. Find security in the one who will never fail you. The one who will never forsake you. The one who will hold you to the ages. The promise of God in his security is brought about by the promise of God in his sacrifice. Our second S. And it's important that we realize and that we grasp the significance of God's sacrifice. I came across uh, an article this week by, by John Piper where he tells a story of a friend who was, was pastoring a, a prison group um, in the state of Illinois. And, and one year, probably around this time, in the lead up to, to Easter, this particular friend of, of Piper's was talking through the crucifixion account with uh, the prisoners who'd come to listen. And at one point in his message, he paused and he asked the men if he knew who had killed Jesus. And some of the men said the soldiers did, others said the Jews, and uh, someone said Pilate. But Piper's friend waited a moment and then he simply said, his father killed him. That's what the first half of Romans 8 and 32 says. God did not spare his own son, but handed him over to death. Isaiah 53 puts it even more bluntly. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. Or as Romans 3 and 25 says, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Just as, as Abraham had lifted the knife over the, the son of Isaac, but then spared his son because there was a ram as a substitute in the thicket. So God the Father lifted the knife over the chest of his son Jesus, but he did not spare him. Why? Because he was the ram. He was and is the substitute. Piper's friend recounted to him that when he said this, that his father had killed him, that those hardened prisoners sat there in silence for a moment and said, why would he do that? And the answer is given right here. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. He did it for us. He did it for you. He did it for me. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or as Isaiah said hundreds of years before it happened, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. And with him and by his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God did not spare his own son. Because it was the only way that he could spare you and me. The guilt of our transgressions, the punishment of our iniquities, the curse of our sin, just as true for the most mature in the faith as it is for the most corrupt in the world, would have brought us inescapably 
to the destruction of hell. But God did not spare his own son, but gave him up wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and crucified for our sin. This verse should be precious to us. Because it's the foundation of the sacrificial promise to us. It's the certification, the guarantee of that promise. Is that the Son of God bore in his body all of our punishment. All of our guilt. All of our condemnation. And all of our blame. All of our, our, all of our fault. All of our corruption. So that we might stand before a great and holy God. Forgiven reconciled, justified, accepted, the beneficiary of absolutely unspeakable promises forevermore at his right hand, where Jesus now sits, verse 34, interceding on our behalf. God has sacrificed the best of the best, There is nothing greater that he could have sacrificed. So when it says in verse 32 that he who gave up his son, how graciously will he now give us all things. We can trust in that promise of sacrifice because all of these things are so much easier for God to give. He has already given the hard thing. He has already given his one and only son. The easy things to give are our blessings. All of our needs, all of our sustenance, those are the easy things. Think of it this way. If I said to a colleague whose whose car I had borrowed the previous day, let's call this colleague John, can I borrow your pen? My other colleague says to me, what if John doesn't want to lend you his pen? If this was something akin to what God has done here, my reply would have been, But John already lent me his car all of yesterday. It's much easier for him to borrow his pen. If he was happy for me to borrow his car, surely he'd be happy for me to borrow his pen. Loaning one's car is a far greater sacrifice, is it not, than loaning a pen? Therefore, it is harder to loan the car than it is the pen. And if my colleague John was inclined to loan the car, then I'm sure he'd be inclined to loan the pen. So Paul says... God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. That's the hardest thing. Therefore, he most certainly will give us all the other things. Because that's the easier part. Church, is this promise of sacrifice true to you today? Do you acknowledge, do you understand that the hardest thing for God to do has already been done for us? And if he's willing to do that for you, to place his son as a sacrificial lamb in the place of us who are prone to wonder, how much must he love us? How much must he want us? How much must he be prepared to bestow upon his children if he is willing to sacrifice his only son, his own son, 32 his beloved son matthew 3 and 7 the son of his love colossians 1 and 13 yet he handed him over he gave him up judas handed jesus to the soldiers the soldiers handed him to pilate pilate handed him to the crowd the crowd handed him to the cross yet it was god who handed him over god could have stopped it 
God could have intervened. God could have called upon his angel armies and in a blink of an eye saved his son from the anguish of the cross. Yet that wasn't his rescue plan. His rescue plan was our salvation. The promise of salvation. The third S. The Bible story of salvation, of course, begins in the very first chapters of our Bible. We learn there that God has created people in his image to rule over the earth, but that mankind has rebelled and fallen under divine judgment. The way back to God now is impossible for the human side. For man is the guilty party rendered hopeless by by sin and with no right of approach. But yet God promises a champion in the earliest pages of scripture who would defeat the tempter and bring about restoration and as we read through his word God reveals more and more about this rescuer and who he will be and what he will accomplish and then we get to Jesus born as the prophecies have foretold who lives a life as the prophecies have predicted, who then bears the cruel cross at the hands of us, willed by God the Father, as the words of old had foretold, perfectly fulfilled. But that's not where the narrative ends. No, the narrative ends where our life begins, at the resurrection At the triumph of Christ the rescuer over the grave. We read in verse 34 of chapter 8. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Hyphen or but. More than that. More than that. Who was raised. He was raised. His conquering over the grave is significant. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17 says. Paul recounts. If Christ had not been raised. Your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. So often we, we limit our understanding of salvation to the death of Christ. And certainly the death of Christ, as Paul says in Romans, is the very basis for our justification. Just as he reminds us here in verse 33, it is through his one act of righteousness, his propitiation by his blood, that sinners are declared righteous in God's sight. But there is more. There's much more to be said. Not only does the substitutionary death of Christ save, but so does the resurrection. Paul states in in Romans that like Abraham, we've been counted righteous for we believe him who was raised from the dead. Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. By raising Jesus from the dead, God declared his satisfaction and approval of the payment Christ made on our behalf for our sins at the cross. And those who are in Christ Jesus, followers of Jesus, God's approval of Christ's substitutionary death, demonstrated in raising Jesus from the dead, is likewise credited to us. So that we who believe receive the favor of God. Therefore, our justification is a real consequence of Christ's resurrection. That's why Paul can say, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If we were still in our sins, we have no confidence, no assurance of our salvation whatsoever. It is no overstatement then to say 
that the resurrection of Christ saves. Moreover, the resurrection of Christ is the basis for future hope. When you look out on our weary world, a world that has been tipped upside down by the pandemic, a world that has been ravaged by recent wars in Afghanistan and in Syria and now in Ukraine, a world that speaks of an impending climate catastrophe, a world that faces rising inflation, soaring energy costs, food shortages and population overload, a world where there is death and destruction, illness, abject poverty, injustice, anguish, a world where there appears to be no hope. Let me encourage you this morning to see the one who promises hope. To see the one who promises a future. To see the one who has overcome death and destruction. To see the one who is at the right hand of God interceding for us now and always. Jesus stared down death and proclaimed over it, Oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. I Jesus have conquered it and in his conquering he makes the way to God possible for us. He makes the promise of salvation a reality. He gives us real, eternal, visible, tangible hope. Let me finish by by reading our passage of scripture through again. My message this morning is but an ill attempt to elaborate on Paul. And what he puts so well. So let the the word of God written through Paul just now speak to you this morning as we read it again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can possibly be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. His one and only How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, against his children, us who believe in him? It is God who justifies. It's his blood that was spilled for you. Who then is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. God's purpose is your security through his sacrifice for your salvation. Please think about that today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of your Son and our opportunity to know his saving grace through trusting in him. Lord, we're thankful that you did what we could not do, that you you sent your one and only perfect sacrifice in place of us and our sin 
Lord, that you bore that sin on the cross and then came back to life, resurrected, triumphing over the grave so that our hope can be renewed in something that is eternal, so that we can trust in the one who will never fail, the one who will never forsake us, the one who will always love us, the one who will be there when the the storms of life roll. Lord, we pray that we would trust you. We pray that we would focus our attention on you, that we would petition your throne. And Lord, that we would live lives that understood the implications of the gospel. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for our opportunity to know him this morning. In your precious son's name. Amen.